0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome yeah, we'll to the no power
1: power Brokers. The the power will fall.
0: This is your host, Paul Metz. We've got uh, one of our favorite guests on tonight. We call these episodes "Checkpoint Charlie." We're nearing a, nearly a dozen of them with the esteemed Charlie Pierce, a writer, blogger, a really smart guy. He's going to tell us what's going on in the nation and around the world, and. Uh, we can't ever be happier than when we have Mr. Pierce on the show. Charlie, how are you tonight?
2: I'm doing well, Paul. How are you doing? I'm Happy doing Happy birthday, r- by the way.
0: Thank you very much. I'm uh, 68 years old, but truthfully, I still have the body of a 67 year old.
2: Oh, man, you're a youngster.
0: Well, it seems when I was thinking about it, every time when I've grown up, my grandpa always seemed to be 68 years old, and now I'm his age. But uh, it beats the alternative, right?
2: As near as I can tell, I I never heard anybody say otherwise.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Charlie, there's so much going on in the world. Let's start with the most important stuff in the nation. What's up with this Sarah Huckabee Sanders podium?
2: Yeah, apparently she spent $19,000. I guess technically it's a rostrum and not a podium uh, <laughs> behind which she would, you know, deliver her gubernatorial pronouncements. And it was manufactured in Europe. I don't know why, I mean, unless there's like a heating element in it or it vibrates <laughs> or something. I have no idea why this thing cost $19,000. But she spent the money to get it. She brought it over, and then apparently she or her office faked all the paperwork about the expenses on it.
0: You got to love these uh, Republicans.
2: Small government, baby.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Say, let's hear a little bit about uh, what do you know, if anything, about uh, Mega Mike Johnson?
2: Well, I, I. (laughs) <laughs> he came to my attention uh, as part of the uh, the Jim Jordan, quote-unquote, weaponized government committee. And he always seemed to me to be, you know, as bad as J- Jordan, but a little smarmier. That's the smarmy. One thing, the, one th- the one thing Jordan isn't is ingratiating. Right. This guy was ingratiating. Uh, but... I confess, I was pretty surprised when he turned out to be the compromise candidate.
0: Yeah. Well, and he's got all of that crazy neo-fascist Christ, Christian views that uh, you know, like you said, the, the party of small government. They want to control every parts of our life.
2: Yeah, they want. They, they, they want. They want the part. They want. Government just small enough to fit into your bedroom.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, it it blows my mind that uh, I can't even imagine uh, them talking about uh, criminalizing birth control. For God's sakes, I mean, what about the pursuit of happiness? You know, I mean, where does that fit in there with?
2: Water well, I mean, plate? That's, that's a great policy proposal if you don't want to get a vote from any woman under the age of fifty. <laughs> for the rest of eternity
0: yeah it's uh and and this whole anti-abortion movement that seems to be for those that are of that mindset yeah
2: the one thing yeah one thing I wanted to point out Paul this is not a guy who has crazy beliefs this is a guy who has crazy beliefs and you know got jobs regarding them his entire life. Right. I mean, he ran gay conversion sessions or his wife did. Wow. he, He, you know, he was a lawyer for the Christian supremacist, uh, Alliance Defending Freedom. Wow. I mean, this is a guy, this is a guy who made a living at it.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, scared in hell, really. Um, uh, but I, I really have to think. Like we saw in the last election, you know, when they took down Roe versus Wade, that it's really got to mobilize. Of course, all women, but any smart, thinking male uh, that wants to, you know, let women control their own bodies—what a crazy thought! Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> what uh, do you think? He's going to be effective?
2: No. I mean he's already uh, first of all he's as much you know at the he he serves as much as the pleasure of the crazy people as Kevin McCarthy did
1: mm-hmm.
2: as soon as he steps out of line, they move to vacate the chair and he gets fired not that he's likely to do it by the way because he's he's much more attuned to them than McCarthy is but his first move was to couple aid to Israel with a move to defund a huge chunk of the IRS. So he was immediately accused of holding aid to Israel hostage so his donor class could cheat on their taxes better. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Polit- leave aside the fact it's terrible policy. Uh, it was just, you know, politically it was tone deaf. The Senate Republicans almost threw themselves out windows. You yeah, and- yeah. You know, so, I mean, they're not going to let. They're not. The, the fact is, the House can pass whatever it wants. The Senate Republicans are still a bunch, by and large, a bunch of you know conservative pragmatists. Right. And they're going to need Democrats to pass anything. And, you know, Chuck Schumer's not going to let, you know, that kind of thing go through. The the president won't sign it.
0: Absolutely. What about uh, this uh, upcoming government shutdown?
2: I don't know where they're going to go with that. Uh, You know, that may be the first test of whether or not he's willing to buck the people who put him in the job hmm
0: you know uh, looking across the pol- political spectrum I uh, uh, read a quote by a uh, tail gunner Ted Cruz as I believe you refer to him and uh, uh, he said you know after uh, what went on you know what went on in in uh, Gaza and Israel he said they're coming to get us snacks and it's like Ted they just got us, in Lewiston. I mean, it's uh, I feel like um, this world we're living in with this proliferation of handguns and automatic weapons, I feel like we're all the Soprano family in that very last scene of the Sopranos. You never know who's going to walk in the door and cause you harm. Well,
2: I mean, I would think, Paul, I would think someone like you who gets up and and performs in public I mean it's got to be a very strange time to be doing that you don't know who in the audience is packing
0: yeah well that yeah, the, I don't know the, what
2: the law <laughs> I don't know what the gun laws in Minnesota are like but
0: well you know it's like hitting where you want to get a gun you're gonna get a gun um, but it's right. a guy that has made a bit of a living singing protest music Christ Almighty it, it crosses my mind every now and then um you know they were uh, I was reading uh, a piece by the great uh, uh, musician Al Cooper and, uh, and 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 other folkies around the time after the Kennedy assassination. Uh, God, mm-hmm. I hate to even, hate to even put the thought into the universe, but that everybody was worried that Bob Dylan was going to get assassinated. And uh, Christ, these days, it's like...
2: I well, those s- the days where he was... Go- those were the days where he was going down to Mississippi, singing on the back of pickup trucks.
0: Yeah, with the great Pete Seeger. Uh, I mean, and I
2: mean, that, that was—I mean, you say what you will, say what you will about Bob. That took a lot of guts back then.
0: Yeah. Well, he was. Uh, I, I spent a really amazing couple of days with Bob Johnston, who produced Blonde on Blonde. Uh, uh, Sounds of Silence, uh, Leonard Cohn, Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison. And I was going to do a project with him that didn't didn't go through. Uh, the label fell through. But Bob, who was number one, smoked more pot than Bob Marley, uh, but was a really kind of a visionary. Uh, of course, you can tell by the records he produced. But he told me we were driving into Austin. Beautiful night. Lights of the city were coming up. And it was a gorgeous night, driving around the foothills of Austin. And he said, and he's got a point. He said, Bob Dylan stopped the Vietnam War.
2: Well, he certainly had a hand in it. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of think that the uh, North Vietnamese Army stopped the Vietnam War, but I understand. Yeah, but I mean. He, he, no, he, I know, he was, you know, he gave voice to, he was one of the first one to give a lot of voice, to give voice to what was going on in the colleges and in the streets for sure
0: yeah in fact this would be a great time to play a little bob dylan and we've got mr charlie pierce checkpoint charlie with us for the whole hour tonight on the wall of power radio hour stay tuned
1: and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone if your time to you is worth saving then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are a changing. some writers and critics who prophesize with your pen Senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. The battle outside raging will soon shake your windows and
0: Welcome back to the second set of the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzen. My guest for the whole show tonight, we're always honored to have Mr. Charlie Pierce. And uh, we're going to talk about a wide range of stuff. But Charlie, why don't you uh, tell the folks about uh, Minnesota Hero, who we just lost a few weeks ago, the great hockey player from Warroad, Minnesota, Henry Boucher, and talk about the piece you did on him and getting to know uh,
2: Henry. Well, I did, a, I did a piece a long time ago. In fact, I have a picture of it, right? Not 10 feet from where I'm sitting. i was a, a sign at, at at the Patch, which is a, a motel, hotel. I guess in the summer, it's a resort in War Road. Uh, with my name on the marquee saying, welcome to Hockey Town. Nice. Uh, I went up there and I wrote about War Road and hockey. And of course, Henry was one of the legendary stars. In fact, I interviewed... Not only him, but I interviewed his son, who was playing for uh, for uh, Warroad High School at the time, and hmm. he was just a wonderful man. I mean, you know, he went out; he was, he was enormously successful, won an Olympic silver medal, played in the NHL, uh, and eventually came home and worked with, you know, the, his his family and friends in the Ojibwe Nation. Uh, you know, basically giving back to the community. And now, he became yeah, tell, you know, a huge tell, figure.
0: Tell the folks about his hockey career and his uh, uh, terrible injury.
2: Well, yeah, he, uh, you know, first of all, he, the le- the legend began when he took War Road to the Minnesota State tur- tournament finals uh, against Edina, which had not. They hadn't, they hadn't like divided up the Minnesota hockey tournament yet, and, they, and Edina was one high school. So you're talking about a small school from the very northern part of Minnesota against a wealthy suburban high school team, you know, from a very wealthy suburb, and they played this this epic game. They played. They wound up. I I, I can't remember the details offhand but I know that they played into two overtimes and in the second overtime Warroad hit the pipe twice and Dion wound up winning the game Henry was the reason Warroad was there Uh, he was the only reason that carried that team anyway so he goes to the NHL and uh, he played you know as I said he played for the Red Wings uh, he played for the North Stars and And uh, he uh, came, uh, I think he played in the WHA, too, actually, but I'm not sure. Uh, He uh, got in a a high-sticking fight in 1975 with a guy named Dave Forbes from the Boston Bruins, uh, and... He cracked a bone around one of his eyes, and and actually ruined his eye forever. Wow! Uh, and Forbes actually was taken to court hmm. for aggrav- aggravated assault, but the jury hung, so there was no decision. But that was pretty much uh, the end of Henry's career. I uh, uh, and he went through. I, you know, he went through a through a rough time you know, fought his way through drug and alcohol and became, you know, reestablished himself as a a pillar of the community, uh, the Ojibwe, of the Ojibwe nation, up in the
0: Yeah, just uh, a true Minnesota legend. I knew a uh, cousin of his who used to come and see me play back when I had a weekly gig at a place called Shaw's Bar in uh, Northeast Minneapolis. And I always wanted to get a hold of... uh, Uh, Henry, and he was going to set it up, never got around to doing it, and then I moved and everything, so things got a little confusing. Uh, But he said, Henry, uh, still at that time, you wouldn't want to cross him in a barroom fight. No. (laughs) He could throw down.
2: There was a a real angry period.
0: Um, You know, one of my favorite Boston Bruins, speaking of tough defenseman was Teddy Green.
2: Yeah, another guy whose a career was ended with a high stick.
0: Yeah. You must have been uh, a Bruins fan growing up.
2: Actually, no. I was, I was, and still am, a Montreal Canadiens fan. Really? And I will tell you why. In when I was, Beginning to watch sports on TV, uh, the Bruins were really terrible. I mean, they—this is a team that would win fifteen games a year—and so I didn't want to be their fan. So I went to my dad, who, in addition to being a, a high school principal, was the ho- was the hockey coach at North High in Worcester, and I said. Who should I watch? And I don't know whether they were on TV or they're coming on TV. And with Montreal, my father said, watch these guys. They play it the right way. Hmm. And I became a fan. And I was rocking right along and everything was great. And then when I was about 11, freaking Bobby Orr showed up. Oh, yeah. So I became an outcast. Ruins got really good. I was a Montreal fan. Uh, I I would never I would never let that go. I idolized John Bellro.
0: Right. Uh
2: but I was stuck now in Massachusetts with a good hockey team and one of the greatest <laughs> players who ever lived.
0: Oh man. Childhood drama. So what I just saw a great picture Charlie Pierce of uh, Jean Bellevue with a young, about a 12 or 13 year old Wayne Gretzky. And uh, I just, uh, yeah. I mean, I was a huge hockey guy growing up. In fact, I think i told you, but for people that haven't heard the story, I went to the Tommy Williams hockey school in Duluth in 1968. And I believe it was Bobby Orr's I want to say it was his rookie year. But the coaches at the uh, school were Tommy Williams, of course, uh, Bobby Orr, and Phil Antonio Esposito. Um, and Tony Esposito. And I got my picture on the front page of the sports section shaking hands with Bobby Orr. It's one of my, my most cherished photos.
2: Where was this?
0: It was in uh, at the Duluth Arena, Duluth, Minnesota. Tommy Williams was, I,
2: I think he. Played, he was the only American in the NHL for a while.
0: Yeah, and he was a he was a Duluth native. So he had a, a two or three years of his hockey camp, and uh, so, in fact, I went to uh, hockey camp with Phil Haney, who ended up on the nineteen uh, eighties uh, Olympic hockey team, and uh, and and others, but. Um, yeah, it was uh, really a charge. And then that, and then, if that wasn't... Do you remember what year uh, Bobby Orr... What, what year was his rookie year? Was it 68?
2: I, no, no. It was 66 or 67. I
0: forget. Yeah. I think maybe more like 67. But anyway, that year, Bobby went out and just tore it up. I think he was like... As a defenseman, he was the third highest scorer in the league. It was incredible.
2: Well, that you was... I mean, that was the... You know, he was... He he revolutionized his sport as much as anybody ever has,
0: and uh, and I guess he's a, a a really good sports agent now, or was anyway.
2: Yeah, well, I think he's retired at this point. But yeah, uh, you know he, um, you know he, he he was you know the victim of one of the most monumental you know scams by an agent uh, of a player ever. When he, you know, he was tied up with that crook, Alan Eagleson, who, and who arranged at one point to be both labor and management in the NHL. And, right. you know, for a while, Canada and the United States were fighting over who was going to get the prosecutor first. And of course he robbed the Bruins offered or through Eagleson, uh, an ownership stake. In the franchise, which in the 1970s was unheard of in sports, right. Eagleson never told Bobby about it and cut the deal moving Bobby to, to Chicago without wow. ever telling him about. it.
0: Wow, unbelievable! I mean, it
2: was it was awful, but that's part of the reason he got into representing players is because he had had a really bad experience.
0: Hmm. Huh. Uh, yeah, I uh, talked to a buddy of mine who's out in Boston actually and and he said uh, after Bobby retired there was some sporting event and he drove uh, Bobby and from the uh, the airport he said he couldn't have been a nicer guy which is exactly how you want your heroes to be right?
2: Yeah it was was funny one time uh, Bob Lobel who was a he was like the king sportscaster in Boston for about 20 years he used to do a Sunday night like interview show and one night he had ted williams larry bird and bobby orr wow on the set and you know obviously ted williams takes all the took all the oxygen out of the room anytime he sat there sure and larry was larry was you know beginning to open up a great deal but bobby was just this guy at the end of the you know at the end of the of the row of C of the panel and it was like, you know, he was just the guy sitting there. Hmm. Huh. Until unless you knew who he was. And of course excuse me. bird always said that before the game, when they were lined up for the national anthem, he would look at Orr's retired number and the Raptors. Huh. And that's how he would focus before every game.
0: Wow. Great story. You know, I was reading a uh, autobiography of Daniel Lenoir, the producer who uh, did Time Out of Mind by Bob Dylan, a lot of YouTube big records, Peter Gabriel and more. And when he was coming up-
2: Yeah, but he couldn't uh, get, he couldn't get Blind William McKell on Infidels. <laughs> hard as he tried.
0: That was actually Mark Knopfler. but yeah, I'm sure Mark's still kicking himself and he asked for that. But, but Lanois said he used to have a duo with his brother, and they were, you know, he's from Canada, and they were growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bobby Orr had a series of restaurants and bars that had music, and Lanois played that uh, played that circuit. And I always thought that, uh, I, I like when my, wor- my Boy, worlds collide like that.
2: I was gonna say, that's a world mm-hmm. in collision moment. <laughs>
0: Let's listen to a little Daniel Lenoir and then we'll be back one more set with the great Charlie Pierce with our continuing epic series of interviews with him called Checkpoint Charlie. Stay tuned. Oh,
1: oh deep water. I could.
0: Welcome back to the Wall and Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. Our guest for the whole show, the great Charlie Pierce. And uh, uh, it's always fun to check in with Checkpoint Charlie. Charlie, uh, the Trump trial is going on in New York. You following that a little bit?
2: I am following that a little bit. I've been actually, because there's cameras in the courtroom, I've been watching the 14th Amendment trial in Colorado.
1: Interesting. They're
2: trying to get, yeah, they're trying to get his name knocked off the ballot based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which says that anybody who gives aid and comfort to an insurrection against the United States can never hold office or what's referred to as under the United States. And Minnesota's trial is on deck, actually.
0: Yeah. Well, we're, you know, we've got... Uh the DFL is controlling the house the senate and the governorship governor Walz is doing a great job and uh see what you want about democrats and money but uh the last fiscal period we had 17 billion dollars in the bank
2: yeah i mean minnesota's uh you know it, it it's the great uh the great parenthesis in the midwest yeah you know, Wisconsin well, uh, can't get out of its own way. Ohio can't get out of its own way. Michigan, I guess, Michigan's running pretty well at this point. But
0: so, what does uh, uh, what's your feeling? Do you think that's going to have real legs? The challenge to trumping on it's the
2: already had more. It's already had more legs than I thought it would have. Mm-hmm. And that it's actually being litigated. And yesterday, the Minnesota Supreme Court said that they were going to allow the challenge in Minnesota to go ahead. Uh, you know, I'm not, I mean, I, I, I it's certainly going to, it's going to be appealed. I mean, mm-hmm. you can count on that, no matter what the decision is. And one of those losses is going to end up on, I think is going to end up in front of the Supreme Court. Wow. But the, the language, I mean, what's being argued about in Colorado right now is not whether Trump incited violence, it's whether or not you can legitimately call it an insurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which to me seems like a very narrow ground to fight on. But as I said, it's already gotten further than I thought it would. Well,
0: from what I saw, it sure looked like an insurrection to me. <laughs> you know,
2: they didn't yeah, look like. I mean, like... I mean you know, fighting, you know, of if I had seen it in a Hollywood movie, I would have assumed it was, you know, it was, you know, a movie about a riotous coup d'état. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: And they, I'm they, certain they, it felt like that. With people who were in the uh, uh,
0: on the grounds,
2: Yeah, you know, people who were in the building. Yeah. I mean, I've heard horror stories from people who were trapped in the Capitol that day. Oh my God!
0: Yeah, it just. Uh...
2: Um, I mean, a Mitch McConnell staff barricaded his office with every piece of furniture they could find in it.
0: Oh yeah, and uh, the photo ops of the the weirdo with the the uh, the horns on his head sitting in Pelosi's office, and then uh, building a scaffold to hang Mike Pence, who I guess well yeah, I and mean, have... having
2: a, having a, a you know a a, a a gibbet on the National Mall that was really. A visual I thought I'd never see.
0: Yeah, no but, doubt.
2: Yep.
0: On the upside, Charlie, uh, a friend of mine is just out in D.C. now as we speak. Have you spent a lot of time in D.C. over the years with your different uh, writing assignments? Oh, yeah.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Have you ever been to I a go place? Down two,
2: three times, I go down two, three times a year, depending on the news.
0: Do you, have you ever been to a place called The Monocle, the bar, restaurant? It's not too. Yeah, far it's right from-
2: down... About halfway
0: down Capitol Hill towards Union Station. I uh, I was there years ago. I played at the Million Mom March with my, at the invite of my buddy Josh Horowitz, who was the um, executive director of the Coalition of Stop Gun Violence. And so we went to the Monocle to hang out. Henry Hyde was having dinner. Uh, Kay Bailey Hutchinson cut into the men's room <laughs> line because there was too many, uh, the line was too long in the women's room but it's, it was incredible the pictures on the wall there's a lot of pictures of John Tower right and Houston uh, and John, I John, John, John,
2: John was a John was a good one for the bending of the wrist apparently.
0: <laughs> Tell people that, that might be a little too young about about uh, Mr. Tower.
2: Well he was a, a very prominent uh, senator uh, from Texas uh, very very hawkish on defense and he almost became secretary of defense except people started mentioning that you know john liked to get seriously lit before noon <laughs> you
0: know i uh when, when there we was were... a lot
2: of that by the way in the yeah. you know in, in the in the in the 50s and 60s
0: well i uh, couldn't there was a lot well, of
2: whiskey, there was a lot of whiskey
0: i was uh, flowing,
2: through, flowing through our democracy back then
0: i had a uh great gig uh three and a half years A place called Nye's Paul and A's room which is great steak and martini joint uh in northeast Minneapolis and it was actually a union bar uh everybody was uh making union wage cooks bartenders swampers and the rest and uh, I that's where I encountered a real martini for the first time and I'm still a big uh-huh. fan uh Straight up a vodka, straight up dry, when all up, shaken not stirred. But I couldn't believe because it was right around that time or right before that they got rid of the three martini exemption at lunch. And I'm going, who the hell can drink three martinis at lunch and go back to work?
2: That that was something I never understood, Paul. And I'm glad I hear you say that because <laughs> I thought I was just a I thought I was just a wimp. My <laughs> maximum on martinis is one. Maybe yeah. first of all, they well, don't drink it while it's cold. It tastes like lighter fluid.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: And I can't it's, I can't just I cannot just fire one down.
0: Yeah. Well they uh you know what they say about the martinis, uh they're like uh breasts, two are perfect, uh three's too many. And you know what they say about uh uh, a perfect martini should conjure images of Greta Garbo skinny dipping in an arctic lake. Invented by a guy named Martinez. That's, a, 18... nice,
2: that's a nice image. I can conjure that up, actually. Yeah. Without a and, martini. I can, then... I can. In fact, I'm conjuring it right now.
0: <laughs> and I think uh, FDR's motto was four martinis and a treaty.
2: Well, yeah, he would, I mean, apparently he would like, he would shake them up for anybody who came in the Oval Office. <laughs> if you came at the right time, if you came at the right kind of day, you know there are, you know those. I, I learned this very young when I was a young political writer in Massachusetts. Those old wasps, those old old line New England types, yeah. they all had hor- They all had hollow legs. Yeah, they, they 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 didn't they didn't like pickle. They didn't like pickle themselves. They just they you know they just. Ran on a, a steady flow of you know, sh- you know martinis or sherry or whatever.
0: <laughs> the good old days, as we call them. Charlie, let me ask you this: when you're in D.C., when you get a chance to sightsee, I know you're a busy guy. Where do you like to go out there?
2: I'm sorry, ask me that again. I was I was momentarily distracted by Greta Garbo skinny dipping.
0: <laughs> who wouldn't be? I said, when you go to, when you get time in D.C., when you're not working, when you're not on the beat, uh, where do you like to go? Do you like to get to the museum? Well, I mean, I,
1: I'm,
2: I'm a very big, I'm a very big museum guy. And of course, mm-hmm. the museum has it. Uh, as for at night, I like to go to the Dubliner, the Irish pub down near Union Station. And I I'd lo- I'd love to go to a place uh, on the White House end of Pennsylvania Avenue called the Tune In. Okay. Which uh, allegedly, Jimmy Breslin wrote most of his Watergate book, How the Good Guys Finally Won, in the Tune In. Cool. He spent the summer essentially hanging around Tip O'Neill's office. (laughs) And he he would go down and and write about, uh, you know, Tune In, right at the Tune In. So I was introduced to that by a friend of mine who worked for John McCain. Great guy named Mark Salter, uh, and it was just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a dive bar, but it's a—it's a terrific one, and it was the only place on the East Coast that I ever found that had Lining Krugel's Flogger on tap.
0: Wow! God bless him. God bless. Hey, what's going on? I haven't been following it. There was that strike. Uh, I think the they and-
2: settled. I googled it because you know I was you know forced to boycott while they yeah. were on strike. But I Googled it like two weeks ago and I
0: think they settled. Oh good. Yeah, I just took a nice trip uh, down and there's a beautiful outdoor venue. Well it has a top and I call Big Top Chautauqua in Ashland, Wisconsin, right outside of Bayfield. I don't know if you ever had the pleasure of being in Bayfield. No, I know actually, yeah. Yeah. And uh, but but I went to a uh, I went to a bar in Bayfield and I had the they had line and kugel signs all over, and I was hoping the strike was over because I had a nice cold glass of Lion and kugels, and it tasted as good as it ever did.
2: You know, that's, I mean, the, the lager, which they refuse to sell around the country, is still my favorite American beer.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, although it, they, it's the they, they, they it's the perfect blend of, of tasty and, you know, thirst-quenching.
0: Yeah. And they can uh, discontinue summer shanty any moment, and I won't be sad,
2: yeah that's all. i mean i don't mind the I don't mind the red that much if I have to you know if I'm stuck without anything else, and the Christmas beer is generally pretty good, although yeah. it's a little bit heavy for my taste, but I did. yeah the shandy all of the shanties all of the 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 beer with fruit you know the smoothie beers i'm not I'm not big on those.
0: Yeah, me neither. I'm not a big cider guy either. Alcoholic cider, not for me. I was getting my car fixed in Superior, Wisconsin, which uh, we we refer to a as good town soup town. It. And uh, uh, I was talking to the guy, Lifer grew up and his dad grew up running this car shop in Superior. He said at one time, Superior, Wisconsin, God, it would have been maybe a town of twenty five thousand back then had a hundred and twenty five
2: bars. Wow. That was I mean that's, <laughs> that's very Wisconsin. It's like, like, like I, I was Googling the other day. My father, after the war, was during the occupation in Japan, was a port director in a town called Nigata, which is on the northwest side of Japan facing China and Korea. And I just Googled, I've, I mean, I've, I'm interested in going there. He always said he wanted to go back and never did. So I feel kind of obligated. But I looked it up, and it is apparently the sake capital of Japan. <laughs> there are 90, literally, there are 90 distilleries wow. in and around Nagata making their own kind of sake.
0: <laughs> That's a lot of sake, man.
2: And if you've never run into sake in your travels...
0: Believe oh me. I have.
2: It's it's an adult dose.
0: I uh I had uh I had my first shot of sake in People's Park in Berkeley. Uh I don't know who is which one of my buddies was running with a flask of that, but yes, I'm very familiar <laughs> with the with the uh with that particular uh liquid. Charlie Pierce, tell us before you go, number one, thanks so much uh, for being on the Wall Power Radio. Our, what can we Americans, especially as progressives out there, long-suffering progressives, what can we look forward to? Where is the bright light here at the end of the road?
2: Uh, I think, you know, you know, you keep your head down and keep working. Don't, don't look for the light. You know, if you work hard enough, you'll find yourself in the light anyway.
0: That's a beautiful way to end this uh Episode of Checkpoint Charlie and the Wall of Power Radio. Charlie, you have a great rest of the weekend, and uh, as always, thank you so much for your time.
2: Hey, uh, Paul, you know me. I, I, I love, I love the idea of your listenership. <laughs> well, we get have, out here. I haven't, I haven't, been, I haven't been to the Upper Midwest in too long.
0: Well, you get, uh, get that buddy Popovich out here. I want to hear the the real story about the hookers and the fire in Matt in Madison. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yeah, we could, were uh, we were heroes that night. We could be heroes. <laughs> we could be heroes just for one day.
0: Oh, fantastic. Charlie, thank you so much, man. You're you're always a, a joy.
2: Take care, man. Take
0: care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This show is produced by Paul Metza, and by Patrick Willia. I've got a big show coming up. 25th anniversary of Paul Metzah and Sonny Earl. They've called us Bronnie McGee and Sonny Terry meets the White Stripes December 20th at the Dakota Jazz Club in downtown Minneapolis. My book, Blood in the Tracks, the Minnesota Musicians Behind Dylan's Masterpiece, is for sale at fire bookstores everywhere. And like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy.